The reading is taken from John, chapter 1, verses 43 to 51. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe, because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, James, for the invitation. It's lovely to be here. Uh, and thank you for coming and resisting the temptation to catch a few more rays on such a, a glorious day. Let me uh, lead us in a short prayer first. Heavenly Father, please open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things out of your word. In Christ's name. Amen. Well, as James said, we start um, this afternoon in this new three-part series from John's Gospel Encounters. With Jesus, And the first one I want to look at is the reading we've just had read for us there in John chapter 1, when Jesus meets a sceptical inquirer. It addresses perhaps the most fundamental of all the big questions of life, and that is this one. Where should we look for answers to the big questions of life? And it speaks to those who are sceptical about Christianity, and also to Christians who face scepticism from others. And this encounter comes just a a few verses after the famous opening verses of John's Gospel, often referred to as the prologue. Let me remind you how it begins in verse 1 of chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And then verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And in a culture that believed that the world was rational and had a moral order to it, which they referred to as logos, these words would have fallen like a, a thunderbolt. The Bible here confirms that life isn't the product of blind, random forces. But there's purpose, real purpose to life. 
But then it adds to everyone's astonishment that this meaning isn't a principle, but a person, an individual human being who walked the earth. And this was revolutionary. It means that life to the full isn't to be found in some sort of philosophical contemplation or intellectual thought, which would leave most of us out of the running. Rather, it's to be found in a person. A person encountered in a relationship that's available to anyone, anywhere, from any background. And to illustrate it, John records Jesus meeting a particularly sceptical person, Nathaniel, here in chapter 1, verse 43. Notice first with me Nathaniel's problem. He is at least a snob, maybe even a bigot. He certainly has a closed mind. So Philip comes to him and he says to him there in verse 45, you'll see it on the sheet if you want to have a look. We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And then Nathaniel sneers back. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Everybody from Jerusalem, you see, looked down on the people from Galilee. And before we uh, tick him off, which we're likely to do, aren't we? We're really all like this. My wife and I, Isabel, uh, used to live in a village called Lindfield in West Sussex. And it's just north of Hayward's Heath. And Hayward's Heath has grown and grown and grown, and it's enveloped Lindfield. But of course, the people of Lindfield definitely live in Lindfield. The postal address is Hayward's Heath, but... Oh, no, no, they don't put it on their their letterheads. They don't live in Haywards. They definitely live in Linfield. And they definitely look down their noses at people who live in Haywards Heath. And there are all sorts of markers, aren't there, in which we look down on others and others look down on us, whether it's where we live or where we went to school or university or what sort of job we do or whether we're married or single or even whether we go to church if we do. And Nathaniel couldn't believe that somebody from a place like Nazareth had the answer to all the big questions of life. He says, as he rolls his eyes, you're telling me he's got the answers and he's from Nazareth? I don't think so. And if you've got this view of Christianity, or you know somebody who does, well, that's no great surprise. Many people view Christianity much like Nathaniel viewed Nazareth. People love to roll their riders at the idea of Christianity and its claims about who Jesus is, what he's done and what it can do for them. They say, Christianity, I've been there, done that. I grew up with it. But I realised early on it wasn't really for me and I've, I've made up my mind. So Jesus is still, if you like, from Nazareth. And if that's your attitude to Christianity, or you know people who think like that, there are a couple of things worth um, saying. First, dismissiveness is deadly. It kills creativity. It kills problem solving, not to mention any hope of a relationship. Apparently, marriage guidance experts cite eye-rolling as one of the definitive warning signs that a relationship is in serious trouble. It reveals one person's contempt for another. A successful marriage can handle all sorts of things. Disappointment, disagreement, pain, frustration. 
But it can't handle complete dismissal of the other. Contempt kills relationship. Or to use a different uh, kind of example, imagine you use your keys. Increasingly happens to me as the years unfold. Once you've looked for them in all the places where they can be, and you haven't found them, you'll start looking in all the places they can't be. And of course, that's where you'll find them. So there's nothing more fatal to wisdom and good relationships than rejecting certain ideas or certain people out of hand. But dismissiveness is also disastrous. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean this. Probably unknown to you, many of your core values have their origin in Christianity. Let me just run a couple past you. Why, why do we think that every human being, regardless of talent or wealth or race or gender, has dignity, has rights. It is because of the Christian belief that we're all made in God's personal image, revealed in Jesus Christ, that that idea ever got established. And why do we think that we should care for the poor? Well, in pre-Christian Europe, the idea of loving your enemy and caring for the poor was thought madness. Society would fall apart, it was claimed. The belief held sway was this. The strong prevail, the winner takes all. But because of the Christian belief that we're all made in God's personal image, revealed in Jesus Christ, we think everybody, including the poor, matter. You may say, well, that's all very interesting, that these ideas come from the Bible, but surely I can believe them without believing in Jesus. Well, that might be true at one level, but I'd like you to see it's very, very short-sighted. You might also say, well, I can agree with those parts of the Bible about love and forgiveness, that it's about the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount, but all those other parts about the wrath of God, the blood of Jesus, the miracles and the resurrection, well, I can't accept those. But these parts of the Bible, the challenging, the, the supernatural parts, are central. They're not peripheral. The heart of the unique message of the Bible is that the eternal creator God came to earth himself and became weak and vulnerable, suffered and died. And he did all this for us, to pay for our sin, to take the punishment that we deserve. It's the most astonishing and radical act of self-giving and loving sacrifice ever. This is the basis and dynamic motivation for the revolutionary Christian ethical concepts that attract us. What made Christian ethics unique was not that Jesus and the early Christians were such nice people doing all these nice things to make the world a nicer place. These ideas never made any sense to anyone until people came to understand the Christian message about the nature of ultimate reality, summarised in what the Bible calls the gospel. The essence of what makes Christianity different from every other religion and from every other form of thought is this. Every other religion and thought form says if you want to find God, if you want to improve yourself, if you want eternal life, you have to do something. You have to gather your strength. You have to keep the rules. You have to free your mind. You have to fill your mind. You have to be above average. Every other religion or human philosophy says, if you want to make the world right, or make yourself right, then sum up all your reason 
and all your strength and live in a certain way. But Christianity is the exact opposite. Every other religion and philosophy says you have to do something to connect to God. But Christianity says, no, no, no. Jesus came to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. Every other religion says, here are the answers to the big questions, but Christianity says, Jesus is the answer to them all. So many systems of thought appeal to strong, successful people because they play directly into their belief that if you're strong and hardworking enough, you'll prevail. But Christianity isn't just for the strong. It's for everyone, especially people who admit that where it really counts, they're weak. It's for people who are willing to admit that their flaws are not superficial, that their hearts are deeply disordered, that they need a saviour, that they need Jesus Christ dying on a cross to put them right with God. All other revolutionary ideas about caring for the weak and needy Living for love and service instead of power and success. Loving even your enemies. All flow from the gospel itself. Namely that because of the depth of our sin, God came in the person of Jesus Christ to do what we couldn't do for ourselves. To save us. Now if you concede that Christianity is the source of many of your convictions, why embrace one part of Christian teaching? without accepting the other part that explains it and makes it coherent. Don't be like Nathaniel. Don't let a conviction about Christianity being outdated or intellectually unsophisticated unsophisticated, blind you. Watch out for your pride. Watch out for your prejudice. Be aware of contempt and dismissiveness. It's toxic in all areas of life, but especially at the point of asking big questions. But secondly, much more quickly, notice Nathaniel's need. You see, despite his scoffing, he had a need. He had a deep spiritual need that nothing else would satisfy. So he says, Nazareth, can anything good from, come from there? Verse 46. And then just a few moments later, he's saying, verse 49, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Now, once Jesus begins to give him some credible evidence for who he is, he completely shifts his allegiance. Yet, despite all his bluster, notice that Nathaniel nevertheless went with Philip to meet Jesus, doesn't he? Why did he do that? Well, like many young Jews of his generation, Nathaniel was struggling with the fact that the Jews were under the boot of Rome. They had no idea what God was doing. They were having a a sort of collective racial identity crisis. Should they be looking for a Messiah? What was their future? Were they still God's people or not? Had God rejected them? Evidently he wasn't satisfied with the answers that he was getting from his own understanding of things or perhaps from his spiritual condition. So he thought, well, maybe, maybe I should look at uh, Nazareth as unbelievable as that sounds. And all sorts of people have made the same journey to faith in Jesus since Nathaniel. What they've all got in common is this. They've taken a fresh look at Jesus, the man from Nazareth. Well, finally, and very quickly, notice Nathaniel's discovery. 
he discovered that Jesus far exceeded his expectations. And Jesus says two things to Nathanael when he meets them. First, he sees into his heart. You'll see that there in verse 47. He refers to him as an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. In other words, and put rather politely by Jesus, Nathaniel's a bit of a straight talker, even rather abrasive sort of person. But Jesus' words tell us even more about himself, that he can see into our hearts, but is nonetheless gentle with us. And Jesus also sees into his life. You see, the other thing that Jesus says is this, verse 48, I saw you while you were under the fig tree. What was Nathaniel doing there? Well, we don't know, for we're not told. But the important thing is that Nathaniel was astonished that Jesus should know. And the result of Jesus saying these two things is quite dramatic. For Nathaniel declares in verse 49, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And then Jesus, you know, just gently rebukes him in verse 50. He says, first you were too sceptical, and now you're ready to accept me and adopt me. I haven't even begun to tell you who I really am. Yesterday you were rolling your eyes, and today you've had an emotional experience. But slow down. Don't be so impressed by appearances. You still don't understand who I really am. Jesus is, of course, not against people thinking. In fact, he's insisting that Nathaniel does a little bit more thinking. And therefore, if you're sceptical about Christianity, there is a balance to strike. On the one hand, to remain sceptical forever is intellectually and morally self-defeating. On the other hand, surrendering to the first idea that you think will solve your deep emotional needs won't answer any questions in the end. You see, it's not enough to follow Jesus simply because he meets some of your felt needs. Jesus is not a consumer good. You should surrender to him because he's true. That's the point that Jesus is making in those uh, last two verses, 50 and 51. When you first look at Jesus, you think... I probably won't get answers to the big questions, but maybe he'll help me be a better person. Maybe he'll help me deal with my loneliness or some other problem. But when you see him as he really is, you realise he's far more than you ever imagined him to be. In fact, he's the one place where heaven and earth connect. The one place through whom access to God is possible. The one way into the presence of God. Most people start their spiritual journey afraid of disappointment. But Jesus says he'll always be infinitely more than anyone's looking for. He'll always exceed our expectations. So shed your prejudices. And along with Nathaniel, look hard at Jesus, which we'll do next week and the following. You'll find much more than you ever expected. Let me finish with a prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this portrait of Nathaniel, the sceptic, but more so of the Jesus who dealt with him so wonderfully. Help us to see Jesus even more clearly as we look further into John's Gospel next week and the week after. In his name we pray. Amen.